0: Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Father, we ask for your mercy this morning. And that you would pour out an abundance of your spirit upon us and be gracious. That you would lead us to conviction. That your kindness would be present today and that we would repent. That for those who are downcast, anxious, or depressed, that they would receive the comfort that the Holy Spirit promises. That those who lack understanding, that your Spirit would help them understand. That those who may be blind, hard-hearted, or convinced that they may be Christians based off their good works, that you would show them how magnificent Jesus really is. Amen. So, as some of you know, we're starting a series called The Gospel. Why? Right, because at times, especially as Christians, we say, well, that's the ABCs. That's the the foundation. Let me move on to something more. If that's your thought, then my particular prayer has been directed at you to recover your first love. I don't know who it's attributed to, but it's attributed to somebody. So I'll say that. I've heard multiple people say this. When a generation assumes the gospel, the next generation normally loses the gospel. The gospel literally means good news. Let me confess this to you guys. Thursday morning, when I woke up, the first thing I did was not read my Bible. I actually read an article first and then I read my Bible and prayed. The article was titled What is the Great De-Churching? You can find it on the Gospel Coalition if you want to read it. It's by two people. They're actually giving a brief synopsis of a book that they wrote about the great de-churching. Michael... Graham, and Jim Davis are their names, if you're interested. Hear what they have to say. About 40 million adults, that's 16%, in America today used to go to church, but no longer do. Now listen to this sentence. For the first time in the eight decades, Gallup has tracked American religious membership More adults in the United States don't attend church than attend church. This isn't a gradual shift, it's a jolting one. What is he saying here? Now, I don't think, I could be wrong, I guess I'll test out on how well I know this congregation, I don't think anybody's in their 80s yet, right? There are some of you who are close, praise God. But I don't think anybody here is in their 80s. That means for us in this room, this is the first time in our lives that there is less people at church on a Sunday than there are people at church on a Sunday. In your life and my life, we have never experienced that. If you read through the article, you'll see that this kind of de-churching started in the 80s and it has only progressed to now. So, so there's a few things that we just need to be self-aware of, is that maybe all of the flash and glitz and glamour and, and largeness that the church has offered hasn't really produced the results like we thought it would. Now, let me say this too, because this isn't me casting stones at just one style of church. Maybe the seriousness of Orthodox education or theological education within the church also hasn't produced the results like it should. There's something going on. And normally, when something to this magnitude takes place, there's one root core, there's one misunderstanding. And that's the gospel, the good news. When we treat the gospel as the ABCs of the Christian life, we don't think that it has meaning for us for very long. Instead, what I would like to propose for us is that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life, but the gospel is the A through Zs of life in general. We've gotten into a habit of treating the gospel as just a testimony. Let me share my testimony with you, and we treat this as if that's the gospel. Other times, we treat the gospel just as, well, you just got to share sin. Other times, we treat the gospel as you just present God's love. Now, I'm not saying that those aren't things in the gospel, but what I am saying is if that's your primary view of the gospel, then you have a shallow view of the gospel. Because two of those views point to yourself. It's a man-centered type of gospel. The other view presupposes or assumes that the person you're talking to believes that they are evil, which If you look at statistics, most people will say that they're pretty good people. So why do we need God's love? I think the church needs to get back to the two things that Jesus called it to. Love God, love people. But with a shallow view of the gospel, it will be impossible to do that. With a misunderstanding of the gospel, it will be impossible to do that. Why? Because with a shallow view or a misunderstood view of the gospel, we treat the gospel as a sprocket on a wheel. It's just one aspect of my life that keeps it rolling. As long as the gospel can support what I want to really get out of the life, then it's meaningful for me. I mean there are a lot of reasons why there's this great dechurching going on but my hunch is the root of this problem deals with a misunderstanding of the beauty of the gospel So if you're in this for the long haul what we will do is we will look at the gospel through five different lenses. God, man, redemption, renewal, glory. God, man, redemption, renewal, glory. This is why the gospel starts with God. Without God, there is no gospel. Without God, there is no good news. Why? Because God offers us hope. Is it not true that we look out at life, and is this not true in our own lives, that we oftentimes put our hope in momentary pleasures? Momentary pleasures that what we do is, uh, what we hope is that they distract us from this life. Momentary pleasures that bring distraction to a hopeless life that we often are caught up in living or that we often see. Now I have two, I've, I've got one toddler and almost a five-year-old. Let me tell you, putting hope in money, putting hope in life experiences or life stability, putting our hope in political power or excellence These things are like buying cheaply made plastic toys that will guarantee to break on the third day that you have them. They don't bring satisfaction. They won't bring satisfaction. They're to give you a quick hit. Uh, I I once knew a youth pastor who during his... his, uh, Sunday school classes, after minute-to-win-it games, he had the kids who won to take a dip in what was called the box of shallow happiness. What he was doing was he was trying to teach his students that this is what life experiences have to offer you, momentary shallow happiness, things that make it seem like it's exciting, but as soon as you open it up or you see what it is, it leaves you without hope. It doesn't bring the happiness that you thought that it would bring. So here, what we're going to see this morning in our passage, in Psalm 90, verse 2, is this. Because God is eternal, and this is where the gospel starts, because God is eternal, we as humans can have hope. Because God is eternal, we can have hope. And we see this so clearly in this psalm, Psalm 90. This psalm is a psalm that was a prayer by Moses. Moses, the the man of God. And we see some important views of Moses. We see this prayer full of God's everlastingness. We see Moses specifically praying to this God that God would bless the people of Israel with many days. That God would bless the people with his favor. But notice how this prayer starts. This prayer starts with a recognition of who God is. That is that God is eternal. God is from everlasting and to everlasting. And and if you look at this prayer, you will see that Moses contrasts this with man's finiteness. His limitlessness. Moses contrasts God's everlastingness with man's shelf life. So we look at the beginning of this verse and we see Moses say, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. What is Moses doing here? Moses is pointing out the vastness of something. He's pointing out two huge masterpieces. The mountains and this world. These are two big Pieces of creation that Moses is looking to, to draw this image in his prayer. The mountains and the earth. Why does Moses do this? Why does Moses point to these two things? Well, he's pointing out their bigness. He's pointing out their vastness. He's pointing out their greatness. Greatness. I remember in college when I went to Anchorage for a basketball tournament. It was the first time that I'd ever seen real mountains. You know, we've got some mountains here in Wisconsin, right? That's sarcasm. When you are staring at the vastness of great mountains, how does that make you feel? There is a smallness That you feel. The overwhelmingness of looking or standing at the base of a great and majestic mountain makes you realize that compared to this mountain, you're actually a little bit smaller than what your pride wants to tell you. I have to imagine this is how astronauts feel when they are floating in space looking at our world. Confronted with this reality of just how small they are. Why does Moses do this? Moses does this because he is comparing and contrasting something. What is he comparing and contrasting? Well, he tells us in the rest of this verse, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We could also translate this, what Moses is saying is, from infinity, or from eternity, and to eternity. You are God. You have always existed. There is not one point in history where you have not existed. You always have been. There is no starting point for God, and there is no ending point for God. You know, at times when I meditate on the eternality of God, this just puzzles my mind. Because this is the vastness of who God is. This is the greatness of who God is. That there is a being that could exist always. Why? Let's think about it like this. You may ask me, Max, where did you come from? And there might be multiple ways that I could answer that, right? I might say, if somebody were to ask me this morning, well, where did you come from this morning? I might say, well, I came from my house. This is where I came from. There was a a starting point for me. I came from my house. Well, but when I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was being a lifeguard, sometimes I would strike up a conversation and my close super accent would give me away and people would say, hey, your voice sounds a little bit different, eh? Where are you from? And so then I would say, well, I'm from Marinette, Wisconsin. Ah, that's why you have that accent. You don't sound like somebody who's from the South. I might even go one step further if you were to ask me, well, Max, where did you come from? I might say my mom. There was a definite starting point for all of us who exist. But with God, that is not the case because God is from eternity's past and he will continue to live into eternity's future. There is not a starting point for God and an ending point for God like us. God always has been and he always will be. He is from everlasting, as Moses says, and to everlasting. In this one sentence of prayer, Moses is blowing the top off. He's recognizing something crucial about the nature and character of God. And that is that God is everlasting. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is always existing and present. He was, He is, and forever will be present and alive. In this prayer, what Moses is acknowledging, what Moses is praying back to God is that God is bigger, He is vaster, He is more superior than we could ever possibly understand or comprehend. This is the bigness of who God is. And this frightens humans. Why? Because we are not like God. We have a shelf life. There is a starting date. We live and then we die. And our culture hates this reality. Human beings hate this. How do we know this? We know this because there are people who are willing to spend billions of dollars to stay young, to look young. There are 40, 50, 60, 7 year olds who spend millions of dollars to look as if they are 20. The idea of our finite life scares us, might possibly make us angry and frustrated. And so, what do we do? We suppress this truth. We bury this truth. We don't want to believe that there is a God that is bigger and greater than us, so we ignore this truth. We run from this truth. We separate ourselves from this reality. And and what our hearts say and teach us, as the psalmist says in chapter 14, there is no God. This is what the psalmist says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is what we do. We suppress the truth because we don't want to be confronted or believe that there may be a being out there that is bigger and superior than us. Uh, A theologian named Stephen Charnock what he says is that man is born all natural atheists denying god suppressing the truth of god and he says there are three ways that this natural atheism plays out the first is a flat out refusal or belief in god the second is a is a a slight understanding that there is a god out there but Still a refusal to believe that he is the one who provides all things for all people. And the the third, he labels as secret atheism. The one who does good works, acknowledges that there is a God, and yet does not worship the one and true God. Why? Because man suppresses the truth. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And because of this, what does mankind do? Mankind looks for ways to be like God. In our sin, what we do is we look for ways to take the authority of God and establish our own kingdoms here on earth. Why do we get so invested in thinking about our future? Thinking about the retirement that we might be able to have and the treasures that we can lay up in our bank accounts rather than heaven. Because we are more concerned with establishing our own kingdoms. Why do we, as humans... Try to intellectually become as smart as we possibly can so we can reason and think is because we don't want to give ultimate praise to a God who knows all things. We want to establish our own kingdoms. Why do we look for pleasures in this world? Why do we turn to drinking more than we should? Sexual gratification is because we believe that we have established our own kingdoms and as kings and queens of our own kingdoms, we deserve all of the pleasure that we could possibly want because it's our kingdom. And what are we really doing? We are finding momentary gratification, momentary pleasure to suppress the hopelessness that's truly in our hearts. We know deep down that those momentary pleasures do not last. We know deep down that our bank account is going to run out and that we will not take what we have with us. We know that those momentary pleasures will not last and we'll be seeking for more and more and more. We know that we can't know everything. Deep down, we are the most hopeless and helpless people because we put our hope and happiness in things that will expire. Expire how? Look what Moses says in this prayer as he compares and contrasts God's everlastingness with man's shelf life. He says man's days are just like a breath. It's like a sigh. When you get to the end of your life, you will look back and say, where did the time go? It is like a sigh. Moses also compares it to a dream. A dream that you wake up and you say, this seemed like it happened so quick that I can hardly remember what has happened. In other places of Scripture, we're told that our life is like mist and vapor. We have a shelf life, and not only do we have a shelf life, but it's a fast shelf life. Why? Because through one man's sin, death entered this world. This is why we die. This is why we experience death, because of sin. This is why we could never find hope and peace through things here on earth is because we know that they are not everlasting. This is why people don't bring us hope and peace like we long for because we know that they are not everlasting. But we can have hope. You, right now, can have hope. This hope is offered to you. Our, our shelf life, why? Because our shelf life, it should point us up and Outward. This is what our hope should do. Or this is, this is what our shelf life should do. Is it should point us upward and outward. Man's days are numbered because of sin. This is true. We die because of sin. But this tells us something vitally important about who God is. Do you not see this? Since God is everlasting and God does not die and he Let me rephrase this like this. Because God is everlasting and eternal and forever, what does this mean? This means that God is not sinful. And if God is not sinful, then this means that God is perfect. And what this tells us is that then there is hope for us because we can actually have hope in something that is eternal and lasting. We don't have to place our hope in fool's gold here on earth, things that rust and rot and fade from us. We can have hope and peace in something that is everlasting. This is why when we talk about the gospel, we need to talk about God. Because God is the only one that is everlasting. And we see this through the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came as fully God and fully man to take away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Son of God, He displays God's perfect character for us. He displays that at the same time, God could be loving and judgment. That God could both at the same time, His character could be mercy and anger. That at the same time, His character could have both grace and justice. Because God is perfect. And God's perfection tells us that He is eternal. Or, or even better, because God is eternal, that tells us that He is perfect. And how do we see this ultimately displayed for us? We see this ultimately displayed for us as Jesus took on the sin of the world and was crucified. What happened when He was crucified? He died. But he didn't stay dead. Did he? Oh, this was such a sweet time of worship for me this week. Realizing the implication of what it means that Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus was vomited out by death. Because death could not hold Jesus. Why? Because only those that are sinful would remain dead. And Jesus is not sinful. He is perfect. And because he is perfect, death had to spit Jesus back out. Which verifies that he was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. It means that Jesus is the eternal God who he says he was. It means that we can have hope because Jesus is everlasting. It means that we can have eternal peace because Jesus is forever. This is why it's so incredibly crucial to trust in Jesus. Because Jesus brings eternal life for the weary sinner, He brings eternal life for the hopeless. Through our trust in Jesus, we are clothed with the righteousness of God, and we too can have eternal life. Just as one sin causes death, one man's act of righteousness will cause life. But this is our warning, and this is my warning to you this morning, is that eternal life is offered freely to all. But if you do not trust in Christ, you will experience eternal death. Eternal pain and torment. Eternal exhaustion. Eternal anxiety. Christ offers the way of life. Turn from your own kingdoms. Turn from your own hopeless pursuit and finite, silly pleasures. Look to Christ, who is the perfect Son of God, the spotless One who has died to take away your sins and give you eternal life today. Flee from eternal death and turn to Christ. Sin, it brings death. But Christ brings eternal life. And because Christ is eternal, that means that we can have something to hope in that will last forever. What does this do for us then? What should this cause you to do right now? The first is that it should cause us to be the most humble people on this planet. To see the vastness and bigness of who God is, the greatness of who God is, the, the reality that he is from everlasting and to everlasting, that he has perfect character should lead us to be the most humble people on the planet. Does your understanding of the gospel lead you to be humble or prideful and arrogant? If your view of the gospel leads you to put yourself on a pedestal, then I'm pleading with you, you have a misunderstanding of the gospel. It leads sinful people to humility. The second thing that this should cause us to do is that this should cause us to have immense, I am talking about just crazy, stupid hope and confidence in God. Why? Because this shows us just how faithful and perfect God is. Do you really think that if God is eternal and perfect, that He won't comfort you in your misery? Do you really believe that if God is eternal and perfect, that when He says that you've been given the Spirit to put the death, the deeds of the flesh, that He won't actually help you do that? We can have hope and confidence through this understanding of God's everlastingness. Does your understanding of the gospel lead you to more hope and confidence in God? Or does your understanding of the gospel lead to more hope and confidence in yourself? I'm pleading with you, if it leads to more hope and confidence in yourself, you have a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. Lastly, when we recognize God's eternal state, His perfect character, this reality that we can have a hope that is everlasting, our stomachs should turn inside of us to want others to get in on this. How many of us know of people who are looking for hope in all of the wrong places and we keep our mouths shut knowing that they can have eternal hope? How unloving is that of us? How unloving is it of us as Christians to say we have a perfect, everlasting God who will bring you peace and hope, and then we don't share this. This isn't me saying that you need to go to the streets. This is me saying you probably have family members who need this message desperately. Tell them where they can find eternal hope, and don't wait to do it. Go home and do it today. If there's anything I know about myself. It's that I'm a beggar who has found the bread of eternal life and I just need to offer that bread of eternal life to all those who are eating carb-loaded bread that will not satisfy their stomachs. The gospel A right understanding of the gospel leads us to desire to see the salvation of weary souls placing their hope in hopeless things that will rot and fade. This is why we start off. This is why the gospel starts with God. It starts with his eternalness, his unchangeableness. It starts with God because he has what we long for lasting hope, lasting peace, lasting love. Everything you look to fill you up in this life, everything, everything that you look for to fill up your cup in this life will just leak. But God is eternal. God will not die. God is unchanging. He will not fail. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are eternal. We thank you that you bring lasting hope, lasting peace. And that's just scratching the surface, isn't it, Father? We didn't even get to discuss about the lasting joy that we can find in you. The lasting comfort, the lasting contentment, Oh God, take these blinders off of our eyes. Drop the veil in our heart and lead us to greater affections and worship for you and love for our neighbors. Amen.